I want you to imagine with me for just a moment that you heard that Samuel Beckett's play that came out in 1969, Breath, is here in Bryan College Station. And you don't know much about Beckett, but you've heard that he's a great playwright. And so you and your friends get together and you plan this evening. Maybe you go out and get uh, some new clothes to wear. You go out for a nice dinner ahead of time. And you make your way to the auditorium. And you find your seats. The place is just jazzed with excitement. And the house lights lower. And everyone gets quiet. And the play starts with a, just a, a small dim of light shining on the stage. You hear a scream. And then this big inhale. And as the light brightens, you see a pile of trash in the middle of the stage. And then a few moments later, you hear a big exhale of breath, followed by a screen, scream rather, as the lights go out. The whole play takes 35 seconds. What would be your reaction? I know I would feel a little bit gypped, right? <laughs> you laid out some good cash to go see this famous playwright's uh, play here, and, and this was not at all what you thought was going to go on. And so you're there as the house lights come back up, and everyone is sitting in stunned silence wondering what just happened. And if the ancient sage of Ecclesiastes were at that play with us, in the midst of the silence, I think he would rise to his feet, and he would give thunderous applause, and he would shout, bravo, 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 someone gets it. You and I know that art is supposed to kind of sneak past our defenses and help us to see the world in a different way than we normally do. And that's exactly what the book of Ecclesiastes is designed to do. This ancient sage is making us ask some hard questions about life, questions we maybe wouldn't want to normally ask or, or seek answers to, but he's pressing them upon us. And the thing that he wants to get across to us so badly is that life is so, so short. And so with this book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is presenting this truth to us. But he's asking another question in the midst of it. How then should we live? If our lives are fleeting, how then should we live? And that's what he's going to answer at the very end of his book. And so we're going to call our study today, The End of the Matter. Or, Why Everything Matters. And so verse 1, he begins like this with these iconic words. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. The scripture oftentimes calls us to remember important truths. And that's because we're prone to forget them. You and I are prone to forget that God has created us. That he has given us life and breath and everything else. That he is supposed to be the very center of our existence. But we oftentimes forget that. And so Solomon here, at the very end of his treatise... This great work of art tells us, remember your creator in the days of your youth. He thinks this ought to make a difference for the way that we live. And it, it should. It does. Philip James Bailey, we've heard this quote before. He said, let every man think himself an act of God. Now, I don't know how you spent this last week and what you thought about. But has this thought floored you? Did you exist because God, out of his mere pleasure, brought you into existence. He gives you the miracle of breath, moment by moment. Let everyone think to themselves an act of God. We have this notion enshrined in our Constitution, right? Our Declaration of Independence states, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights. 
that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It makes all the difference if we remember our creator, that he is the one who gave us life and breath and everything else. The alternative is not so bright. Stephen Hawking once said, the human race is just a chemical scum on a moderate-sized planet. Now, again, I don't know if you went through this last week thinking you're just chemical scum, <laughs> but I bet if you did, that affected the way you thought about life and the way you lived life and the way that you treated other chemical scum on the surface of this planet. Solomon, in his old age, as he writes this book of Ecclesiastes, having lived a full life, having had all kinds of experiences, now wants to remind us these very words, remember your creator in the days of your youth. He's hitting on that note that we find throughout scripture where we're dared to pray the prayer, Lord, show me how fleeting I am. Solomon is hitting that theme and he's wanting to do it hardly, hard. This is what he says. Remember your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Solomon wants us to remember our creator before what he calls evil days. That word evil in the Hebrew can be translated evil, but sometimes that has a connotation of, of, of moral wrong. It, it's oftentimes translated as bad, like a bad apple or something like that. So remember your creator in the days of your youth before the bad days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Now what's he talking about? Solomon is talking about old age. He's, he's going to talk about, in very descriptive language, the process of, of decaying as a human being. And, and let us lean into what he's saying here. One commentator described it as a delicately sketched vintage of old age. And he's going to use poetic words, which require some interpretation. But there's two primary themes that he brings up here. One theme is that of a gathering storm, and the other theme is that of a decaying house. Let's see how this plays out. He tells us to remember our creator in the days of your youth before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. Now, oftentimes in the scriptures, this imagery of a universe darkening, of the sun not giving its light, the moon not giving its light, the stars disappearing, are meant to convey a, a upheaval, a, a revolution. It's oftentimes used to describe empires when they fall. Jesus himself used this kind of language when he described the, the impending uh, collapse of Jerusalem, which would happen in AD 70 after he, after he himself died and rose from the dead. But here he uses this, I'm sorry, here the sage uses this language of a collapsing universe or a darkened universe, a decreating universe, and he applies it to a human being. A human being who has lived here upon whom... The lights are about to go out. And here he talks about the clouds returning after the rain. Again, in poetic language, he's talking about that time when you come and it seems one storm after another gathers on the horizon. And it probably has to do with health and losing one's faculties based on what he says next. But before we see what he says, listen to what Derek Kidner said in his commentary on Ecclesiastes. He said, in one's early years and for the greater part of life, troubles and illnesses are chiefly setbacks, not disasters. One expects the sky to eventually clear, all right? We do. 
I know COVID has us on edge a little bit, and we're worried about what would happen if we were to catch that. But COVID aside, when we get sick in our younger years, we don't typically think of it as the end of the world, especially now that we have such good medicine and good physicians to be able to, to care for us. But in the ancient times and in many places around the world, when you get old, there's only so much medicine can do. It can't prevent the inevitable. And so Solomon wants us to remember our creator in the days of our youth before these kind of days come upon us. And then he's going to move now to the shifting, uh, shifting of the metaphor to a decaying house. And listen to what he says here. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble. You think about this. What are the keepers of the house? They are your hands. Your hands take care of your body. Your hands take care of your life. You do everything with your hands. And he says there will come a day when your hands begin to tremble. These tools that have been trustworthy and reliable begin to shake. And you can't grab hold of things like you used to. He goes on and says, the strong men are bent. You think of the imagery of, of a strong man who because of age, his muscles begin to not function as well as they did. And he begins to be bent over. His, his legs don't have the same kind of power to keep him upright. And then Solomon says, the grinders cease because they are few. And here he's speaking of teeth. We have great dental care in our time, but even with great dental care, oftentimes old age brings about just the fragility of teeth. And thankfully, we're at a place where, where we can have broken teeth or chipped teeth repaired, but that wasn't always the case. And so Solomon says there's going to be a time when those grinders cease. They don't work as well as they used to because they're few. In his day, your teeth started rotting. All you had was to pull them out. That was the answer. He goes on and talks about those who look through the windows are dimmed. Think about this on the house. You look outside, and here he's referring to our sight. We begin to look out upon this world, and things are not as sharp as they used to be. I turned 50 this year, and I noticed this last year I have to have reading glasses for the first time. I'm like, am I that old now? <laughs> Evidently I am. But Solomon says there's going to come a time when, when those windows are dimmed. You look out on life and things are not crisp. You can't focus. You can't see as well. Verse four, and the days, I'm sorry, and the doors of the street are shut when the sound of grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird. Here, if you think about living in a world where people are just right next to one another, if you live in an apartment, this is probably a good illustration. You would shut your front door to not hear what's going out on the street. And he says, there's going to come a time where your ears are kind of like they, they're shutting everything down and you can't hear as well. But then sometimes you can hear too well. <laughs> you're trying to get a nap and your hearing all of a sudden is really good. <laughs> yeah, the noises are keeping you awake. And then he goes on at the end of verse 4 and talks about all the daughters of song are brought low. What's he referring to here? I think he's referring to the elasticity of our vocal cords. You used to be able to sing heartily. You opened your mouth and, and good sound comes out. But in old age, those vocal cords are not as reliable. They get strained much more easily. And even though you might be able to still pump out good sound, they're brought low. Verse 5, he talks about, they are also afraid of what is high and terrors are in the way. There used to be a time when you would walk around and you didn't think anything of it. But with older age, you begin to look around, you spot what's going on around you, and it makes you nervous. You used to be able to be in a room full of children 
and not think anything of it. But now you're worried one of those kids might bump into you and knock you down. And you know that if you fell, that would be a big blow. It's a, it's a time. He says terrors are in the way. He goes on to talk about the almond tree blossoms. The grasshopper drags, drags itself along and desire fails. Well, what's he talking about here? Well, when almond trees bloom, they turn white. They're covered with white. And he's referring here to our hair turning white or, or gray. The grasshopper, grasshopper drags itself along. You, you see a grasshopper who was meant to jump and to leap, but has a, a broken leg, and he just drags himself along the way. Desire fails. Some commentators believe this is talking about sexual desire, and it might be. But it could also be just a desire to live. I've known many people who were advanced in years who said, I'm just ready to go on. In my previous church, I had a lady who came, and she was blind. and She'd been blind for some time, and she didn't have any family. And she told me, John, I pray every night that God would take me tonight because I'm ready to go on. Her desire to live has failed. Solomon continues, because man is going to his final home. And the mourners go about the streets. I don't think Solomon is here thinking primarily of heaven, just uh, probably more likely just along the lines of, of going to where we lay bodies to rest. And those who mourn, those who gather at our funerals, go about the streets. And then he says in verse 6, Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern. Here he's talking about things that have been useful that now are breaking. He says this is when he wants us to, to think about what's coming upon us because we need to live in light of those days. And then he says this, and the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. He's already told us that we are of dust and we will return to the dust. And here he brings that issue up again and he says our spirit, or it could be translated our breath, returns to God. Every breath that we take is a miracle, but there will come a time when God calls that breath back. And so I think what Solomon is basically trying to get across to us is this simple truth. The time to remember your creator is the time before you run out of time. The time before you run out of time. Solomon brings this part to a close, and he says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. If you're here with us at the very first message, we talked about this word preacher is just describing someone who assembled people for instruction. And it was used of kings in the ancient world to teach people the laws of the land. And so here Solomon has assembled us and he's walked with us through various stages of life and the accomplishments that he had and everywhere that he sought fulfillment and joy. And he concludes by saying, vanity of vanities, everything is vanity. He brings us back to the point where he started this entire book. And if you remember, that word vanity is that Hebrew word hevel. It means smoke, vapor, mist, or even breath. My friend Jimmy sent me a text the other day, and he told me that his son Zeke was uh, at the bonfire that they were having, and he pulled out a stick, and it was smoking at the end. And he went to his dad and showed him the stick and said, Hevel. <laughs> Mike, high five. Good job, Zeke. That's exactly right. Our lives are short. 
They're but a breath. They're but a vapor. They're but smoke that is here for a moment, and then it is gone. The brother of our Lord Jesus said, What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. This is what Solomon is trying to get us to face. And so someone says, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but this is so depressing. I don't want to think about this. I try not to think about the end of my life. I hope I live a long life, but I don't really want to think about those days. I've seen people whose bodies decay and and older folks who lose their strength. And that's just depressing. Why should I think about that? And Solomon says, that's a good question. You need to think about that because that's where you're going. That's where you're headed. Solomon is not trying to help us live in the kind of world we wished existed. He's trying to help us live in the actual world that does exist. And given enough time, each and every one of us is going to journey to that place where our bodies begin to give out, where this beautiful creation that we get to inhabit will break down and decreate. And so I think in many ways, Solomon say, what is truly depressing is to waste the precious breath that you've been given. The reason I want to talk to you about the shortness of life and about remembering your creator before these bad days come upon you is because you need to live wisely with the short period of time that you have. And so let's just pause for a moment in the middle right here and just apply this to our lives. First of all, to those who are our senior citizens, I want to say two things to you. Thank you, number one. Thank you. Thank you for running the race well. Thank you for passing the faith on to us. Thank you for the wisdom that you can pass on to us. It's invaluable. If there's ever a generation that needs to hear the wisdom of people who've run the race before us. It is this generation. I need to hear it as well. But let me also say, we still need you. Don't buy into the lie that your time is done, that God has put you on the shelf and there's not really anything else to be done. We still need you engaged in the fight. I remember when I was younger, my wife and I had just been married and I was reading a book by Larry Crabb and it's called The Silence of Adam. And in that he says, every man needs a brother to walk beside them and someone older, a father figure, to walk ahead of them. So he's talking about brothers in Christ who can come along, who are in your same stage of life, walk alongside you. But you also need those who've, who've walked before you and can show you the pitfalls and give you words of wisdom. We need that. And we need you our senior citizens who are here, who are watching us online, we need you to stay engaged. Don't check out. I know your capacity may not be what it used to be, but if all you have is 70% of the capacity you used to have, let me encourage you to use 100% of your 70%. If your capacity is just at 40%, let me encourage you to use 100% of your 40%. Some of you know my friend Larry Joyner. Uh, he was here in Bryan College Station. He's since moved away. He taught, I think it was accounting at the university. And he, in his retirement years, had Bible studies with international students. And when we moved back here to Texas, God caused our paths to cross. And he invited me to join in on that Bible study. And it was really fun to see this man who was retired engaging these people. And so one day we had coffee. And I said to him, Larry, you could be doing anything right now. Why are you spending time with international students trying to teach them about the gospel of Jesus. 
And he said, you know, I came to this point in my life where I was asking the question, of what use am I? My career is over. I have all the time in the world. What should I do? And he said he was, he was drinking coffee at Starbucks off um, Rock Prairie Road there. And he said he was in the book of Psalms, and he came across this passage. Oh, God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, oh, God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. My friend Larry said, God brought this passage to my attention and he inspired me to stay engaged. The years that I have left, he wants to be engaged and that's entirely commendable. We saw this quote last week from Jonathan Edwards. He wrote this when he was 18 years old. Resolve to live with all my might while I do live. That's a great resolution for our senior citizens, but it's also a great resolution for those of us who are not senior citizens. And so I want to take a moment to apply this to those of us who are not yet at those seasoned years. And so if you are not in that category that Solomon just described as you're breaking down, you're still young, and I like that. But let me say just a couple of words of application to you. This quote by Jonathan Edwards would apply to us as well. I think those who are most likely to ignore Solomon's advice, to think you, you have plenty of time to live, that you can get right with God down the road or get serious about your spiritual life, you're the ones who most need to hear what Solomon is saying. And you're the ones who need the gospel of Jesus Christ and to bring your life into alignment with God's will for you so that you can live your life for him, so that you don't waste the precious breath that God has given to you. Robert Murray McShane was a minister in Scotland who died at the age of 29. And in his diary at age 21, he wrote this. May 21st, this day I attained my 21st year. How long and how worthlessly I have lived. Here's a man at the age of 21 who had, as far as he could see, many years ahead of him. But he had the spiritual maturity to look at his life and he says, I'm 21 this day. But man, I've wasted so many days of these precious years that God has given to me. He went on to have a big impact for Christ, but died at the age of 29. Another person who died at the age of 29 was Jim Elliott. He was the martyr uh, who was killed in Ecuador. And when he was in his university years, he wrote this. God, I pray... Light these idle sticks of my life, and may I burn up for you. Consume my life, my God, for it is yours. I seek not a long life, but a full one like yours, Lord Jesus. What a daring prayer, right? <laughs> to call upon God, to use his life as a light for the gospel, and to use it however he wants. And he recognizes this central truth. His life is on loan from God. And also, that however long we live, we need to live it for Jesus. Jesus himself died at the age of 33. I remember when I was a university minister here at Texas A&M, and I was teaching college kids, and I hit my 33rd birthday, and someone said to me, you know that's how old Jesus was when he died. And I was like, thanks, I'm not sure what you're trying to say with that. But as I thought about it that later that night, as I was going to sleep, I was like, Jesus lived a relatively short life, and yet he accomplished everything that the Father wanted him to do. This is what he prayed the night before he was crucified. 
Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus had done everything the Father had laid out for him. He lived a full life. He lived an amazing life, a beautiful life. And now he has one more task to do, which is to go to the cross to make atonement for the sins of his people. And so whether you're old or whether you're young, let us live with all our might while we live, because our life is but a vapor. We're going to move on to verse 8 here, but I want to remind you of the structure of the book of Ecclesiastes. We brought this up at the very beginning. At the introduction, we're given basically who this is who's speaking to us, and we have an outro or a conclusion. And in the midst of that, the big portion of it, from chapter 1, verse 2, to the verse we're about, uh, we just looked at, rather, the words of the preacher are vanity of vanities. Everything is vanity. Or mist of mists. Everything is a mist. And so it turns here at verse 8. And some people think this is another person adding some thoughts on. Other commentators believe this is Solomon just speaking of himself in third person. Either way, this is what it says. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. Uh, Solomon wrote over a thousand songs, and we have one of them in the Bible. It's called the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon. And he wrote um, over 3,000 proverbs, and we have a good many of those in the book of Proverbs. And part of Solomon's role as a teacher of wisdom was to gather these sayings and to craft them in such a way that they can make an impact on our lives. And that's exactly what the book of Ecclesiastes has sought to do for us. As uncomfortable as it is sometimes to hear what he has to say, he wants us to learn wisdom and to ask the question, how should I then live? It says in verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads, like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. A goad is a sharp stick. Think of it as a cattle prod. <laughs> These words of wisdom are meant to to shock us, to get us to go in the right direction. Shepherds would often use these with their sheep. So he says these words are like goads, meant to, to move us in a certain direction, to get us to wake up, to pay attention. And they're given by one shepherd. If this is speaking of Solomon right here, Solomon in his role as the king of Israel was a shepherd. Many people think that this inspired scripture is referring now to the shepherd, God, the creator of our souls. Either way, these are given to us by God, the shepherd, through Solomon, the under-shepherd, so that we can hear. And then he says this in verse 12. Be, my son, so he's writing, we know, to, to younger people. My son, be aware of anything beyond these. Of the making of many books, there is no end. And much study is weariness of the flesh. Here's one of those famous passages from the book of Ecclesiastes where the author says, of the making of many books, there is no end. He lived before we had Amazon.com. What would he think if he saw some of the access to books that we have now? But at this time, living centuries before Jesus, he says, look, of all the wisdom in the world, there is none better than what's contained in the scriptures for us. And particularly in the book of Ecclesiastes. There's no higher level of wisdom we can attain to. You can read all the books you want, but at the end of the day, your life is fleeting. 
You're here today and you're gone tomorrow. So don't wear yourself out looking at another philosophy book or another book on world religions. I was a philosophy major and a religious studies minor, and so I can feel what he's saying. But he's saying, look, you can wear yourself out, but you'll still end up with the fact that you are going to die and you need to learn how to live. And so that's where he goes in the very next verse. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Solomon's bringing this long treatise to a close here, and he said, this is it. When everything's been said and done, this is the end. This is the goal. This is where we need to arrive. What do we do with our short life? Fear God and keep his commandments. Now, for many of us, those words are a little disturbing. What do you mean by fear God? We've covered this a little bit before in our study in the book of Ecclesiastes. Fear for us as English speakers carries a notion of terror and being just deathly afraid. And the Hebrew word can have that elasticity to it, but it oftentimes has the connotation of awe, of something that takes our breath away. Jerry Bridges, in his book, The Joy of Fearing God, summarizes it like this. He said, it's a profound sense of awe toward God, or this profound sense of awe toward God, rather, is undoubtedly the dominant element in the attitude or set of emotions that the Bible calls the fear of God. Respect, admiration, and amazement are all mingled together to create a complete sense of awe. And so, in many ways, what Solomon wants to do with us in telling us to remember our Creator is to remember to live in awe of Him. To be so overwhelmed with the fact that the one who spoke this universe into existence also gave us the precious gift of life. Life, breath, and everything else comes to us as a gift of God. And one so glorious, one so powerful, one so holy, one so full of love and mercy should occupy the center of our life. And we should be in awe of him. The scriptures in verse Psalm 30, I'm sorry, in, in Psalm 33 says this, let all the earth fear the Lord and let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. This in Hebrew poetry language is a parallelism. The first line is amplified by the second line. It says the same thing over, but with greater intensity. Let all the earth fear the Lord and let the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. So what Solomon is saying is he wants you to be in awe of your creator. Do we have a sense of awe? He also says what we should do is keep the commandments of God. You remember the time when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. They all gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, an expert in the Old Testament law, asked him a question to test him. He said, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says what God wants from you. What God wants for you is that you would excel in love. Love for your creator, love for one another. And even as Jesus taught us, love for our enemies. We are no more fully human 
than when we are at this place where we are loving God and loving one another. And so here, we're summarizing the, the entire argument of Ecclesiastes in two ways. Fear God, stand in awe of him, and love well. Because this is the whole duty of man. This is what we're created for. The book of Ecclesiastes would end well here. If that was the last thing that was said, that's powerful enough. But there's one more line that the ancient sage wants us to consider. And he says this in verse 14, the final verse of the book of Ecclesiastes. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Why does Solomon end the book that way? What is he trying to get us to understand? Remember, he's been telling us that everything is fleeting. Everything is like smoke. And so we could conclude that everything is meaningless. That nothing matters, right? But that's not where he wants to take us. He wants to take us to the point where we understand that everything matters because God's going to call us to himself one day and we will stand before him to give an account of our lives. Philip Reichen in his commentary says this, Why does Ecclesiastes tell us about the final judgment here? Because it means that everything matters. If there is no God and therefore no final judgment, then it is hard to see how anything we do really matters. But if there is a God who will judge the world, then everything matters. The final message of Ecclesiastes is not that nothing matters, but that everything does. What we did, how we did it, and why we did it will all have eternal significance. The reason everything matters is because everything in the universe is subject to the final verdict of a righteous God who knows every secret. Here Solomon is leaning into the truth that God one day will set this world to right. He didn't know exactly how that was going to happen. He believed the promises of God. But he knows that we're all going to stand before the judgment of God to give an account for our lives. And that is actually good news. That means those who've gotten away with hurting people in this world will not ultimately get away with it. That means the, the Jeffrey Epsteins of the world will have to face a critique of their life, and receive a verdict from God. But it also means that we will as well. And that actually is what makes us nervous, isn't it? The thought that if we had to stand before God and give an account for our lives, for some of the things that we've thought, for some of the things that we've said, for some of the things that we've done, that can be terrifying. And so Ecclesiastes doesn't want us to encounter its wisdom and arrive at the point where nothing matters. Rather, it wants to lead us to the point where everything matters. Everything in our fleeting lives matters because God will call it to account. And so we can summarize maybe our study this way. The end of, matter, of the matter is that everything matters, including your fleeting life. Or as R.C. Sproul once said, right now counts forever. Not just because you're sitting in a church, but because what you do this afternoon and what you'll do every day of this week and every day for the rest of your lives matters to God. And if that's the case, there is nothing more important than to make sure that we are right with God. 
Peter tells us that Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. God so loved this word that he sent us Jesus, who lived the life that we are called to live. He loved perfectly. He had a profound sense of awe of his Father in heaven. And yet, he came not only to live and to love, but to lay down his life for people like you and me, to make atonement for the sins of people like you and me, and to rise again victorious from the grave for people like you and me. And if you believe that, my friends, and I encourage you to believe that, that changes everything. In fact, the Apostle Paul stood up, this one-time enemy of Jesus and his people. He stood up in the middle of the city of Athens with a Epicurean and Stoic philosophers gathered together and he taught them about Jesus. And this is what he said. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why now? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to us, to all, by raising him from the dead. Here Paul tells these Athenian philosophers and people in the marketplace words that could put him in prison. That Jesus has come back from the dead. That he is the Messiah. And God is going to judge this world with Jesus. And he's given evidence to us by raising him from the dead. I love the way Packer put it in this classic work, Knowing God. God's own appointment has made Jesus Christ inescapable. He stands at the end of life's road for everyone without exception. And so my friends, Jesus came to make atonement for the sins of his people. And he offers you and me forgiveness and life in his eternal kingdom. His heart is bent on mercy. Listen to how he put it in the Gospel of John captures this for us. John chapter 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So God has given us Jesus to redeem our fleeting lives, but also to make us stand before the righteous father. And we do that because the righteous one, Jesus, died for us. And when we trust in him, we're clothed in his righteousness. We stand in Christ and we be made right with God. Jesus said this, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. He's praying this the night before he's crucified. The night before he secures eternal life for us. And he said, this is eternal life. That you know God and know Jesus. So eternal life doesn't begin when we die. It actually begins when we receive him into our life. Believe in him. That communion starts with him. And so, yes, our lives are fleeting. But death doesn't have the final word. Jesus does in his gift of eternal life. I've been waiting all series long to bring up this quote from Kansas. Some of you know it. 1977, the music band Kansas had this hit. And they sang, dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind. Everything is dust in the wind. Dust in the wind. I wonder if they had been reading the book of Ecclesiastes. I think Jesus would come in at this point and say, yes, you are dust in the wind, but you are beloved dust. <laughs> I have come for you. 
I've come to bring you into my eternal kingdom. You are made from the dust, and to dust you will return. But I love you, and I will one day raise your dust and reconstitute it so that it's like my glorified body, and you will be with me forever in paradise. And so, as the Apostle Paul says, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Do you see how the Apostle Paul is straining to find words to to capture this glorious news of the implications of the gospel? Yes, we are wasting away, but inwardly we're being renewed day by day. This light momentary affliction, what is that? I don't know. I don't know what he's referring to. My hint is he's talking about this life. But whatever the case, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. How does it do that? Because my friends, when you take Solomon seriously and you come to grips with the fact that you are immortal and that you are dust in the wind and to dust you will return, it leaves you longing for better news than that. And that's exactly what Jesus delivers. So Paul says, this life is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. My friends, Jesus has come to redeem and rescue your dust. And you are beloved dust. So here Solomon reminds you of that. And remember your creator while you live and live with all your might for him. But also hear Jesus saying, I have come because you are my beloved dust and I will raise you again and you will be with me forever. 